Let's pray together. Father, you are the teacher. God, by your spirit, you illumine your word and bring us understanding. Would you open eyes and hearts this morning as we look to you and we look to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We begin a new series this morning. I mentioned it uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think I forgot to last week. Uh, in First Peter, since we were in a number of uh, longer narrative Old Testament sections, I thought it would be good to uh, move over into an epistle and take some shorter segments uh, of the text. And the series... Uh, we're going to call This is the True Grace of God, which is a quotation out of 1 Peter 5, I believe it's verse 12, at uh, the closing paragraph, which is a summary of what Peter is doing in these five chapters. He's explaining what the true grace of God is, and so it's not surprising that when he ends the letter, uh, he says that's what he's been talking about, and he asks us uh, to... Uh, his readers, his hearers to uh, take it to heart. Uh, this morning we're going to look at the first nine verses of chapter one. It's hard to tell from uh, the English translations, which are very good, I'm not demeaning them in any way, uh, that uh, verses three through nine are actually uh, much like Paul does occasionally in Ephesians and other places. It's all one sentence. Uh, it's all clauses uh, hooked uh, together And it's actually wonderful to read it and study it that way, but we're not going to try to do that uh, this morning. But listen now uh, to God's word as we read these nine verses uh, all together. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice 
with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the Word of God, and this is the true grace of God. Thanks be to God. I hope you notice that after uh, the greeting, which lays out the foundation in those first two verses, we'll look at it more closely in a few minutes, uh, God is to be acknowledged as blessed, Peter is saying. God is to be acknowledged as blessed because of what He has done in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what He has done in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the true grace of God. Regarding those words, uh, blessed be God, uh, don't worry about the references. I'm not even going to give you the verses because most of you have got uh, a concordance or a Bible app that would let you do this. But I want you to know how prominent this thought is, not just with Peter but with Paul and the rest of the Scripture. In Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Book of Acts, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's all about what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. James, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. James says it. Paul says it. Peter says it, that in the Lord Jesus Christ we are the firstfruits, whom He poured out on us the Spirit of God richly through Jesus our Savior, Gospel of John. Titus, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washings of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. If I could emphasize one thing in this opening message, and we'll see it again and again through the book, it would be that we speak of salvation in Christ in doctrinal terms only because it is first personal. Uh, doctrine is straight teaching. A lot of us have been to an orthodontist, ortho, straight, the way we like to get our teeth fixed. Orthodoxy is straight teaching, straight doctrine, things said about God that fit what God is really like and things that explain what God has done in Christ in very direct and clear ways. It's truth that is taught, but it's the person who is the truth that we are most concerned about. From knowing what God is like and how He's gone about delivering us 
from our rebellion against Him. That is the true grace of God. We've got to know what God is really like. We've got to know what we're really like, what our real dilemma is. And it's only the straight teaching that fits those relational realities that helps us. And this text is just so amazingly wonderful. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it even in the first two verses and then the verses 3 through 9 unpack it. Uh, It's a Trinitarian text. It's about what the Father does and what the Spirit does and what the Father and the Spirit do in and through the Son. And the first thing that it tells us is that, that we're known, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that we're known in an incredibly special way. We're known by God the Father. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit. Elect exiles. I don't want to go a lot into the background. Uh, There's detail that we don't know. Uh, Just a little bit of background. There were roughly, from what we can tell, about 1,000, 1 million rather, of the Jewish people living in the general area of Jerusalem and and what we would call Israel today. And there were another 2 to 4 million Jews scattered around the greater Roman world. And they scattered for many reasons. Uh, The New Testament talks about uh, the the ten cities, the Greek cities in the north, where there were a lot of the Jewish people. We know that there were a lot of the Jewish people that ended up in Rome, and we know that a lot of them got chased out, and that sometimes our uh, Jewish brothers and sisters weren't real happy with the Christians when they started rising up and growing in great numbers in Rome because uh, the Jews got in great trouble all for being Jews, and the Romans thought Christians were just different kinds of Jews. And so when the Christians got in trouble, the Jews got in trouble too, and vice versa. And we know that Peter was uh, in the environs of Rome when Nero went through his gyrations, and there was great persecution both of Jews and and Christians. And we know that many Jews were exiled, and that amongst the Jewish scattered communities, think of Paul's missionary journeys, think of Peter who went especially to the Jewish communities, uh, that there were many believers amongst the Gentiles that became a part of the new churches with the Jews. Uh, So we're not exactly sure, other than that these places named in the beginning of Peter's book are all in uh, the eastern side of what is now Turkey, Asia Minor in the terms of the day. And they were probably dealing with many Jewish folks, but it appears from the rest of the letter, many Gentile folks mixed in. Uh, We're not exiles just from heaven. Uh, That's, I need to be careful here, I don't get off into another sermon, but uh, uh, too many of our hymns uh, have us leave the earth and just go to heaven and we never get back to earth. Uh, If you know good biblical theology, you know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to make things new, uh, and and so it's not a matter of of here or by and by in the sky. It's a matter of here and ultimately uh, a new here with new bodies for us. So I think the sense of exile and the sense of being aliens is the fact that, uh, that we are a scattered people looking for the new Jerusalem. 
uh, looking for the ultimate city of God that comes with the new heaven and the new earth. And so wherever we are, we are in exile. Uh, And there are certain seasons when we really know we're in exile. And many Christians in the West are beginning in this last century and even these last decades in the U.S. uh, to feel a little more like exile even in North America, aren't we? Because we're finding out how different we are. And one of the things that I think uh, those of us who serve as pastors and elders do well to remind us is no matter how nice we say things about Jesus, and there are a lot of nice things to say about Jesus, uh, if we speak the message of Jesus truly, it always causes trouble. Because he is, I love the words that we read in worship earlier in the service, Uh, the gap, the difference between who He is, between who God is and who we are, and the need that we have is so great that to really speak of Jesus truly and of the true grace of God is both really good news but really scary news because it lays out a reality that we need to face. Foreknowledge of God Foreknowledge is not simply knowledge about what goes on in the future. The word is not used many times in the Scripture here in 1 Peter, in Acts 2, in Romans 8, and Romans 11. And when you look at all of those passages, uh, this kind of knowledge when it's speaking of God is a certain knowledge based upon God's certain loving choices. And it's a word that at its heart Uh, is about affections. The foreknowledge of God isn't uh, just about ideas and knowledge and content in God's thinking, but it's about where God's affections are set, where His purposes and plans are placed. The Lord Jesus was crucified according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. He had set His affections for us on allowing Jesus to go through what He went through when God became flesh. Abraham uh, was told what was going to happen with Lot because God says, I know him, which is another way of saying I've chosen him. I've set my affections on Abraham. He is mine and I will work through him. And so we are elect exiles, chosen, elected in the foreknowledge of God for God's purposes. And that word election, uh, don't want to get off onto it for more than a moment, but if we looked at the passages in the New Testament that speak of choice or election, uh, it's always used of divine choice in the New Testament. And so you've got one word that speaks of divine choice, and you've got another word for knowledge that speaks of divine affections, that the love of God is involved in these terms. So rather than getting lost in theology and philosophy, I would urge you to hear those words that are words that talk about how much God loves His people and how much He cares for His people and that He calls them, another word that is used over and over again in Paul's letters, with a purpose according to His love. It's an affectionate foreknowledge with plan and purpose It's according to His great mercy, Peter says, and it's to an inheritance that is going to be given to His people that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
He's father not only to our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are now his adopted sons and daughters who are to love all peoples because we have become so loved. That's at the heart of the apostolic message, isn't it? Uh, John says in 1 John that his joy can't be fulfilled uh, until not only those he's ministering to have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, but until all the others that are going to be brought into that family are brought in. That's the fullness of apostolic joy. It's the fullness of the Father's love. And secondly, we're born of born by the Holy Spirit, in the sanctification of the Spirit, Peter says in those opening verses, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And sanctification is being used there not so much about the ongoing maturing that we will grow in holiness, and we will if we're walking by faith and and walking in the Lord, but it's talking about the basic reality that it's by the work of the Spirit that believers are set apart to be a new people. And, and that's a wonderful reality. If, if you are not sure you're a Christian and this teaching is really new to you, it may sound a little strange. <laughs> like, you know, what, it, what is all this? But if you think about it and, and you listen to what it's saying, it's describing a reality that if it's true, says that we can be loved and known, and that we are chosen, and, and there's a fulfillment and an ultimate meaning to life that brings everything in life together. And out of that being set apart, sanctified by the Spirit of God directly, uh, we become, and we'll talk about it in point three, uh, devoted, obedient followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, and thus Peter says in the second part of verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's a work of the Spirit. He begins by setting us apart, but it's ongoing. May that kind of grace that's active and builds us be multiplied. May the shalom of God uh, be modified. When Tim prayed for us and with us uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, it was about that expanding peace of God, the shalom of God in the way we deal with one another and love one another and love other believers and love ultimately our neighbors. Uh, so that they might see what the love of God does to people. We are that kind of people. The Spirit's work, verse 3, giving us new birth, a living hope that comes about because of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, We won't go there, but uh, if you're taking notes, jot down the beginning of Romans where uh, Paul talks about the Spirit of God resurrecting the Son of God incarnate. Uh, as a sign of his acceptance with the Father, and we are drawn into that kind of new resurrection life. And I love verses 5 and 6 and 7, which talk about the Spirit of God guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, Did you know that the Holy Spirit is guarding your faith? You're not left to yourself, uh, and that our faith needs to be guarded, that uh, that we be protected, that we stay on course, that we stick to the true grace of God for this salvation that we have the beginnings of, the down payment, the earnest, but the fullness isn't here yet. And that guarding is needed because we're going to be tested, grieved by various 
trials. And I hope you're beginning to get the sense in those realities that Peter describes uh, that this gospel is a gospel that is full of very specific actions of God. Ed Clowney, the late president of Westminster Seminary, uh, wrote this in his commentary on 1 Peter, the apostolic message, the preaching the apostles did, was not a melange of individual testimonies prepared as the twelve spoke for five minutes each on what the resurrection means to me. I love Ed's insight. Uh, uh, back in the day when Ed wrote that, uh, I was involved in campus ministry and uh, and I had a really hard time because I'd been trained in uh, texts and reading literature outside of the Bible before I got serious with the Lord. Uh, and when I got in Bible studies and everybody was talking about what this text means to me, my non-Christian blood went, what's wrong here? Because I wanted to know first, well, what does the text mean? Because what the text means to me ought to flow out of what the text means. If you start reversing those things, you can make texts mean anything. And I was in the university in the late 1960s, and here we are in the beginning 2020s, and now we make texts mean anything we want them to mean. In fact, there was a great decline in literature departments in graduate school around America when it became all about the reader and the hearer and not the text, because who wants to go get a degree in what everybody can make up on their own? There was no content, and literally the enrollment started declining. Thankfully, we've seen a little bit of a turn uh, in that kind of thing. But Clowney says, rather, it was the Lord's interpretation of His own work. In the light of His own Word, He must suffer these things and enter into His glory. And the apostles uh, teach us these things. And thus, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of Him we are known and We are born again and guarded, and thirdly, we're bound, devoted by deep affection to Jesus. We are known and we are sanctified by the Spirit into this new birth for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Uh, Those are not really two different things. They're really one thing talked about two different ways. And you've got to think Old Testament here for for a while. I think it's Exodus 24. I won't take the time to double-check my notes, but it's one of several places in Exodus where in describing what's gone on in the Exodus and what the people of God are to be, uh, they pronounce out loud as a congregation. We're going to say the Apostles' Creed together uh, before we have communion this morning. We proclaim together this is what we believe. And the Israelites proclaimed together that they would obey the Lord. And do you know what Moses did? Moses sprinkled blood on them from the sacrifices, marking them as the people who had been sanctified by the Spirit of God at the Exodus. And they were now marked with the blood of that sacrificial lamb. And that picture carries over into many places in both the Older Testament and the New Testament. And it even is tied into the blood of communion. We don't sprinkle the blood of Christ on ourselves at communion. Uh, There's a sense in which the waters of baptism point to that analogy as well as others. But we drink the life that is given to us 
by that sacrifice and that resurrection. We picture the spiritual reality, the life of Christ that feeds us, and we are devoted to Him. Though you have not seen Him, verses 8 and 9, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory. It's a wonderful, wonderful reality. As we bring things together and get ready to move towards the Lord's table, uh, think with me for just a moment about what Peter says here, that in this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter hints at what he's going to talk about in the rest of the letter, that they're going to have really good times in the Lord and joy in the Lord, but there's going to be testing. There are going to be times of trials. There are going to be difficulties. Uh, from what we can put together about this time period for the church in Asia Minor, there wasn't widespread persecution, but there was here and there, and spreading at sometimes, lessening at other times, uh, great difficulty for the believers. People lost their jobs because of their faith. Uh, they were ostracized because of their faith. They obeyed the Lord rather than the culture, uh, and they were looked at as unclean because they didn't do the things that the culture did. They were weird. And that pressure you know, comes upon the people of God in various times, in, in various ways. Uh, in researching for this series, I was reminded again of several sources that commented, if you study uh, the church broadly around the world and which parts of the Scripture uh, the church, churches and Christians like the most, it's not in Europe and America that First Peter is on the list of the favorite books. Excuse me, but in what we probably should call the two-thirds world, the biggest part of the world, where believers have had the biggest difficulty through the centuries, First Peter is one of the favorite books because it both preaches the gospel, teaches the gospel very, very clearly, but it shows the battle the gospel brings. And it shows that we are called to be faithful sons and daughters, knowing how to give answer in the midst of the pressure to how we can have hope when others don't. And there is a rather large area of application for us right there, isn't it? Uh, do we let the uncertainty of our times uh, rattle us as much as nonbelievers are rattled by it? doesn't mean we aren't rattled by it. It doesn't mean some things are changing that scare us or that we don't, we don't want to change. 
But as believers, we're called to go back to the gospel. What are the things that never change? And, and how do we live with that reality? I was listening uh, uh, to a sermon, and I won't bother saying who it was, though it was an excellent sermon and an excellent preacher on First Peter. And it caused me to dig in and, and do a little bit of research, and I, I think it's a fitting example. Uh, the setting is 1948, end of World War II, when the UN uh, declared Israel a state. And a man by the name of David Ben-Gurion, who's uh, a fascinating individual if you study his background, um, became prime minister and defense minister. And this is what Ben-Gurion wrote in his diary. He said, I arrive in Jerusalem early in the morning and found the city rejoicing and happy. People were dancing in the streets and a large crowd gathered in the courtyard of the Jewish agency building as the UN's declaration of Israel as a state spread around the world. And Ben-Gurion writes, to tell you the truth, uh, the joy was not a part of me. In fact, there's one story that uh, a younger group that began to dance the hora in circles around Ben-Gurion, uh, wanting him to join in but he didn't. He said, to tell you the truth, joy was not a part of me, not because I didn't appreciate the decision of the UN. Rather, I knew what was to come, war with all of the Arab armies. And as he looked at the dancing Jewish young people, uh, he saw them not just dancing, but he saw them in battle. And I think that's a pretty good image uh, for us that we need to dance. Uh, at the communion table, we need to dance and realize that this is some party. And, and the joy that it represents is incredible. And so it ought not just be a somber time, but a time of delight. But at the same time, we are a people who are always in one way or another going to be in battle. And the really different thing about our battle is that our general, the Lord Jesus, says, even in the midst of the battle, love your enemies. Oh, you know, sometimes not even Christians like that. And, and sometimes we haven't practiced it very well at all. Of the people that we disagree with and the people that are being disagreeable towards us and maybe in reality, not just in our opinion. Uh, out of the heart of the gospel comes the kind of love that Jesus showed from the cross when arms open wide, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't even understand what they're doing. They are my own people and they know me not. But in his way of living and dying, uh, he shows them what God is really like and that's what we do too. So as we come to the table... Let's both think of dancing the hora. I won't ask Stephen to uh, get us into the aisles this morning. Somebody said, aw, there is great joy in that.
But let's think of that wonderful reality and the joy that is ours. And some of us are hurting and really need to focus on that joy. But let's also think about the fact that uh, there's conflict around. And wherever the Lord Jesus is really becoming known, uh, there's going to be tension and some conflict. But that doesn't mean that we become uh, warrior-like people, except in the way that our Savior was the ultimate warrior. And the way that he dealt with evil uh, is just utterly amazing. Let's pray. Father, take these words uh, Prepare us for the table. We ask it in Jesus' name.